0: Well, as we do turn to God's Word now, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning we're looking at verses 18 to 25. Uh, so you'll remember how uh, for the last couple of weeks we've looked at the different sections we have coming up where uh, Peter is telling us as believers to be subject in different ways. The first week we looked at be subject to the governing authorities uh, but there, Peter also says, be subject to every human institution. And so this morning, we're going to look at Peter's exhortation for slaves to be subject to their masters. Now, I know this is a maybe a difficult passage for us to understand. And so when I uh, get into the sermon, I'll, I'll deal with some of that difficulty. But just know that, that this command for slaves to be subject to their masters has every importance for us and every application for us as we want to live faithfully to Jesus Christ. And so that's the passage that we'll look at this morning. So John will come and read for us that main passage, first Peter two, eighteen to twenty-five. After that, uh, Nate will come up and read for us from Isaiah 53, verses four to twelve. This will remind us of the suffering of Jesus himself, which is something that Peter himself points us to, if slaves are going to endure suffering rightly. And then Nicholas will come up and read for us from Matthew six, verses one to six and sixteen to twenty one. And these verses teach us to fix our eyes on God for our reward and not upon man, which is, again, something that Peter himself is telling us, how he's telling us to live. And then lastly, Christy will come up and read for us Galatians 1, verse 10, where the Apostle Paul identifies himself as a slave of Christ or as a servant of Christ and makes clear that his aim is to please Christ in everything. So, John, if you'd like to come on up now and begin our reading.
1: 1 Peter two eighteen through 25 Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... But his wounds, by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls.
2: Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 12. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That is that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors.
3: Matthew 6, 1-6 and 16-21. through Beware of practicing your righteousness before the other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And when you pray, you must not give; must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like hip, the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others truly i say to you they have received their reward but when you fast anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.
0: Galatians 1.10 For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So in 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 18... We see the primary command that uh, Peter has for us right off the bat. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. This is the main command that Peter gives us in these verses. Everything else he says comes along to support this command. And so you probably have a question as we read this command where are we going with this this morning, right? Uh, what does it mean that slaves are to be subject to their masters? Why should we care about this, right? We can be very thankful to God that no one in this congregation this morning is a slave, so that they have to pay particular attention to this verse. And yet, as I said, I believe this passage has lots of application to us in every way. Uh, just to maybe off the bat, uh, correct one wrong notion. I'm not going to be talking about employees and bosses, okay? Maybe you think that that's where we should apply the, the slaves and masters analogy, but I think that would be a terrible way to transfer this text to our modern day, right? In our jobs, we are not slaves, okay? We, we get paid for our labor, which means we're not a slave. A slave means you don't get paid for your labor, you're just owned. So we, we shouldn't be applying this text in particular to our workplaces, But this is a text that I think can be applied to all of life. And I think it can be applied to all of life because the calling that Peter here gives to slaves is essentially a calling that he gives to every Christian. You can see that in verse 21 of 1 Peter 2. He says, for to this you have been called. Okay, now he could be referring to slaves in particular, but I'm arguing that he is Applying this to all Christians. And the reason for that is where Peter goes from there. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so do you hear that? If Christ suffered for you, namely if, if you're a Christian, if you're someone who's trusted in Christ, if you're someone who has said, my sins, Jesus, I trust your atonement for, in your resurrection, I take for my own. If that describes you, Christ suffered in your place, then the calling that Peter gives here to slaves, or to servants, as the ESV has it, he gives to you. Okay? So this passage is not just applicable to people who are slaves, who have masters. This passage, what Peter exhorts us to here, is applicable to every single Christian. Now, I also realize that this passage and Maybe even the passage from last week about how we have to be subject to the authorities and almost certainly the passage that we'll tackle in some weeks to come where it says, wives, be subject to your husbands. I realize that these sort of passages really um, kind of hit us sideways, right, in the modern world. Uh, we are not comfortable <laughs> with someone exhorting slaves to be subject to their masters, right? And we're not comfortable with that for very good reason, I would say. But because there are just so many questions involved in uh, just the the wider ramifications of what Peter says here, I do want to tackle some of those harder questions in coming weeks, okay? So this morning, I'm really going to focus on what you could call the the heart application of this passage, what all of us as Christians are to do. But in coming weeks, I do want to wrestle with some of the other issues that this passage brings to the surface. So one of those questions that I could see you having is why, in the first place, does Peter seem to give some kind of legitimate authority to a master owning slaves? How can that authority possibly be a good thing? How can we as Christians assent to that kind of authority? And so I just want to ask the question about where does, where does authority itself enter into the Christian life? And how can we as Christians accept proper authority, even if it's in a situation where we strongly disagree with it, like servants being subject to their masters. And so I'm going to take one message just to deal with that question. How should we think of authority? How can that kind of authority be a good thing? I want to take another message to deal with the question of when can we, if ever, flee from unjust suffering. If someone is treating us wrongly, if someone is abusing us, is it the case that we as Christians are just always supposed to take it? I mean, that's what Peter seems to be exhorting slaves to here, right? He's, he says very clearly, be subject to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And then he even makes it more clear what's going on. In verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So he really seems to be holding up for servants in this case, that if they're in this position where they're getting beaten, even for doing a good thing, then they're supposed to endure for the Lord's sake. And so that raises a question for us today, right? Is that what all Christians are supposed to do all the time? Are we always just supposed to stay in bad situations for the Lord's sake? That's a really difficult question, right? So I want to take another message where I, I wrestle with that reality and how we as Christians are supposed to respond to unjust suffering. And then I want to take one more message. The, the last message, the last question that I see raised by this passage is how are we as Christians supposed to advocate for greater social change, right? This passage here seems like a really good passage you could turn to in the Bible to just justify slavery more generally, right? You could say, oh, look, God must be in favor of slavery because God is telling slaves to be subject for their masters. So does that mean that we as Christians, in whatever cultural context we find ourselves in, are just kind of supposed to be okay with it and just try to find a way to live in the midst of that? I don't think that's the right answer, and so I want to take a week where I ask that specific question— Coming from this passage of First Peter, how can we as Christians engage in this work of social change, of changing our city or our nation or the world in directions that it does not exist right now? And there are proper ways for us to do that as Christians and there are improper ways for us to do that as Christians. But I know that's a really big and a really important question because really wonderful social changes in history have been brought about by Christians advocating for those changes. And so we want to honor that and ask How can we biblically advocate for those things? So I just want to let you know at the outset that I will be dealing with those questions separately because if you have those questions in your mind, then that's a good thing, that's an understandable thing, and we should go to Scripture with those questions. If you have any other questions in your mind that spring from this passage about unjust authority, I invite you to email me about them or ask me about them. Maybe it would be another sermon that we could do just on the basis of these questions. But again, those three questions really stood out in my mind as things that I was wrestling with this week as I was studying this passage. And I thought, man, these are hard questions and they're really good for us to talk about. And so I want to take some separate weeks to to deal with each of those questions. But again, for this morning, in this moment, looking at this passage, I want to deal in particular with the universal application of this passage, okay? So even though there may be ways that we need to qualify this passage in some regards, even though there may be ways that we need to see that slavery is not an okay thing, is not a just thing, and it's right to resist it, or even if we may see ways that uh, those in authority abuse that authority and make it illegitimate, even if we see those different things, nevertheless, There is clearly a message in this passage that is applicable to all Christians and at all times. And so put it in one sentence, that is that Christians need to be willing to suffer unjustly. Christians need to be willing to suffer unjustly. Okay, that's the, that's the heart of what Peter is exhorting servants to here. Peter knows that there are slaves in the midst of the Christian congregations that he is writing to. And he knows that those slaves are suffering unjustly. And he says that instead of fighting back, instead of lashing out, instead of reviling in return, as he says Jesus did not do in verse 20 through, he did not revile in return when he suffered, he did not threaten. So instead of lashing out in those ways, we as believers need to be willing to suffer unjustly. And not just... Suffer unjustly in a sense of just waiting for our moment to lash back out. But suffering unjustly with all respect, as verse 18 says. Be subject to your masters with all respect. I don't know about you, but I think that this idea of suffering unjustly is probably the hardest thing in life. And I'm not trying to make an overstatement there. I mean, just ask yourself the question, to you, what is the most difficult thing in life? What is the most difficult situation you could possibly find yourself in? And just think through some different options there, right? I mean, maybe some people would say the most difficult situation would be some kind of physical pain that just doesn't go away. I mean, that would be very hard, right? To just have physical pain all the time? Yeah, that would be really hard. What about doing something really terrible and then having to suffer the consequences for it? You know, what if you had to murder someone and then spend the rest of your life in prison? Like that would be really hard to spend the rest of your life in prison or you do something stupid and you get some injury and now you have this injury for the rest of your life? Like that would be really hard to deal with, right? But I think kind of putting both of those hard things together is this idea of suffering unjustly, right? Because not only are you suffering which is just painful in itself, right? It's suffering. It's painful by definition. But it's also something that you don't even deserve. It's something that it's not brought about because of your actions. In fact, if it's an unjust suffering, that means it's brought about in spite of your actions. That means that you're doing the right thing. You're doing what you're supposed to do. And yet, in spite of this fact that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, suffering is still coming, Now, in the context of this passage, it's really clear what this unjust suffering is, right? It's a slave who has a master who is just a brutal and an unkind master. The slave does everything that he can right. He tries to please his master all the time with respect, showing honor. And yet, this master, instead of being grateful, instead of being kind in return, just takes advantage of the slave beats him for no reason. And so this slave is now suffering unjustly. Now again, I know that no one here is in that exact situation, right? Because slavery is illegal in our country, even though we know that it does happen underground in some ways. And yet I do believe that all of us know something of this unjust suffering, do we not? Now some of us can be thankful to only know a little of it. You know, maybe you really tried to serve someone in some way one time and instead of them showing gratitude to you and saying thank you, maybe they just ignored you and took it for granted or maybe they actually had something ugly to say about you because you didn't do something perfectly, right? So that would be like one kind of unjust suffering that we experience. Maybe some of you have much greater unjust suffering. You're in a marriage where you've tried really hard to love your spouse as best you can and yet you feel like your spouse just continually kind of puts their palm to your face saying, no thank you, good try, but I don't care about you. I mean, that's unjust suffering when we're trying to do that. Or maybe it's some other kind of service that you don't think you should have to provide, but somebody's insisting that you do this and so you, you do it the best you can, but even then, they don't seem to show any gratitude. They don't seem to understand what you're going through and so it's unjust suffering. And again, there could be a thousand different ways that we experience unjust suffering. And I think all of us know when we experience unjust suffering because our hearts, at least my heart, is kind of on a hair trigger to whenever something happens to me that's unjust, that's unfair, my mouth immediately wants to open and say, wait a second, (laughs) that wasn't fair, that wasn't just. Right, Even from childhood, we're on this hair trigger that whenever the slightest unfair thing happens, we want to let others know about it. And so we all know when we suffer unjustly. I mean, I can still remember, it's so so stupid in my mind that I have the worst memory, and yet I can still remember as a kid one time when I cleaned up my room, I made it all look perfect, and then later that day my mom came and told me, Rob, go clean up your room. And I just thought that was so unjust. Here I'd worked so hard all on my own to do it. And yet my mom doesn't acknowledge it. She tells me to go and clean up my room when it's perfectly clean, when I already did it. And I just remember feeling the injustice of that, you know? Uh, Just as a little kid. And that's such a tiny, tiny thing, right? I mean, what these slaves are going through with their masters is a thousand times worse. I mean, Lord, save any of us from having to endure something to that extent. But, If we do endure something to that extent, Peter here is offering us hope. He's offering us a way forward. How can we endure? How can we, as believers, go through unjust suffering? And his answer, I think, is just one of the most beautiful answers possible. I think it shows just precisely because unjust suffering is the most difficult thing for any of us in (laughs) life— I mean, if Jesus Christ can get us through that, if Jesus Christ can get us through unjust suffering, I think he must be able to get us through anything, right? I mean, surely if he can get us through unjust suffering, he can help us deal with physical pain or sickness. He can help us deal with just facing the consequences of our own sin. He can help us deal with all these lesser things. If he can help us deal with being beaten when we haven't done anything wrong, I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. And so what is Peter's answer? Well, let's start from the beginning one more time in verse 18, and again, we'll read down through verse 25. So he says, "'Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing.'" That's his first hint of an answer. "'This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure?' But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Notice those words, gracious thing, is repeated two times. In other words, he's saying we're looking to God as the one we're serving, right? We're worried more about what he thinks than we are about what this master thinks or whoever it is that's causing us to suffer unjustly. So it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's the first thing that's supposed to kind of warm our hearts and prepare us to endure suffering. But he doesn't stop there by any stretch. Verses 21 to 25, I think, are one of the most powerful gospel meditations in all of Scripture. He points us to the gospel, to Jesus Christ Himself, to help us endure suffering. So look at verse 21 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So I identified at least six reasons in here, six things in here that Peter brings to bear to help us endure, with respect, unjust suffering. Now, the first thing is really something that kind of goes unstated, something that's presupposed. And that thing that is presupposed behind what Peter writes here is that Jesus is amazing, (laughs) is that Jesus is the greatest person who ever lived. Not only is Jesus the greatest person who ever lived, Jesus is very God of very God. That's what gives motive to Peter writing what he writes here, because he's writing to fellow believers, right? He's writing to other people that agree with him that Jesus is amazing. And so his assumption is that if we can agree that Jesus is amazing— and if I can show you that Jesus did this thing, then you will want to do it too, right? It's, to simplify it, it's basically a question of who is your hero, okay? Who is your hero? If Jesus is your hero, then you'll want to follow in his steps, right? You'll want to do what Jesus did. And so you will admire the work of Jesus Christ, and because you admire his work, you will want to emulate it. And so when we come to these words, when we come to this passage, that's the first thing we want to keep in mind. We want to ask ourselves the question, okay, is Jesus really my hero? Is he the greatest one in all of history? If he isn't, if you're admiring someone else more or if someone else is your hero, then lifting up Jesus as this great example isn't going to help you very much because you won't really care to be like him, right? Because you'll want to be like someone else. But if you see that in unjust suffering, you're actually following your hero, you're actually being like him, all of a sudden that becomes a great source of encouragement, right? Because no longer is it meaningless suffering. No longer are you alone in your suffering. Now, your hero, the greatest person in all of history, what he himself experienced, that's what you get to experience. In other words, you're getting to be closer to your Savior, closer to Jesus. You get to understand more of what it was like for Jesus to live the life that he lived if you will live the life that God has called you to live. So the first point to observe is just if Jesus is so amazing, if Jesus is so wonderful, and if Jesus went through all of this injustice, then yes, even though it is injustice, even though it is painful, You are closer to your Savior. You are closer to your hero. So that's the big point overall, is that Peter is just presuming how wonderful Jesus is, how good it would be to know him. And if you really understand just how good Jesus is, then the fact that your suffering is kind of like a small picture of Jesus' suffering is one of the first things that can give you hope because it means that you're coming to know him more. You're You're becoming more like him You are becoming like your hero. Now, just consider what a staggering reality this is, right? I mean, if you go to any movie today, who are the heroes? The heroes are the superheroes, right? All these Marvel movies, everything coming out, DC movies coming out. The heroes are the people who are strongest. And I don't know if you've ever seen one of those movies that you actually thought was good, but I always think those movies are just not interesting at all. Because you know the hero can't lose, because the hero's stronger than everyone else, and he's always gonna save the day, and so there's no drama, right? So there's nothing exciting about a hero like that. But those are precisely the kinds of heroes that most of the world worships, that most of the world admired admires, right? The heroes that have no weaknesses, that have it all together, that have this superpower or that superpower. And yet the hero that Scripture is calling us to admire, (laughs) this The the hero that Scripture itself is calling us to to gaze at in wonder is the one who suffered more brutally than anyone else in the history of the world. The one who gave up all of his power, gave up more power than anyone else in the history of the world. This is the one we are to admire. Beloved, if, if this is who we see as the greatest hero, if this is what we see as the greatest story in all of history, then how can it be that we ourselves just reject any kind of unjust suffering? How is it that, that we as a people would have this hair trigger on any kind of injustice, saying, oh, you can't treat me unfairly, that's not right. Beloved, if our Savior himself was treated so unjustly, who are we to think that we are better than him? Who are we to think that we are allowed to escape what he himself did not escape, what he himself endured? So I hope you see how powerful it is just to enter with that basic framework that Jesus is the hero. Jesus himself is the example. He's the one that we want to be like. He's the one that we want to know through what he himself went through. If Jesus himself endured unjust suffering, then maybe you can too. So the first thing that we see in all this is the goodness of Jesus. The second thing we see that Peter really reiterates here is how Jesus suffered innocently. So look at verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, any kind of suffering that Jesus experienced, any kind at all, was by definition unjust suffering because he never did sin. He never did anything wrong that he should be punished for it. He never even did anything wrong that he should be sick or be subject to the fallenness of the world more generally, right? He should be able to escape how messed up this world is because he had no part in creating how messed up this world is. That was, that was us humans doing all the messed up things in the world. And yet, even though he was totally sinless, even though he did not even say one wrong word, Nevertheless, he chose to enter this world to become part of the mess, part of the sinfulness that we inflict on one another every day. And even though he became part of that sinfulness, he still did not sin against anyone else. Even when they sinned against him, he didn't lash out in return. So, beloved, if there's anyone in all of history that deserved no suffering, it was Jesus Christ, if there was anyone in the history of the world that, when suffering, should have been able to speak out and say, hold on a second, I don't deserve this. <laughs> hold on a second, you shouldn't be saying that about me. Hold on a second, you can't treat me that way. If anyone ever had a right to say that, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, did Jesus ever say that? No. He was like a lamb who opened not his mouth, we read in Isaiah 53. He was totally quiet. So far from asserting his rights, so far from asserting what would be just, a fair way to treat him, no. Like an animal goes to slaughter, he was silent. He bore the unjust suffering without so much as a word of complaint. He did not even complain. He was not looking for who was treating him fairly and who was not treating him fairly. No. He was totally sinless. And so every ounce of suffering that he endured was unjust suffering. The next piece of exhortation or or way to endure that Peter gives us is the fact that Jesus himself did not lash out. So, verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So, again, Jesus, if anyone in all of history had the right to revile in return, had the right to threaten in return, it was Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said before he went to the cross that if he so desired, he could have asked his father and his father would have sent down 12 legions of angels to rescue him from going to the cross, to rescue him from his suffering. In other words, with just a word of prayer, Jesus could have had everyone opposed to him slaughtered on the spot by these supernatural beings that humans can't even fight against, right? (laughs) All he would have needed to do is ask, And say, Father, do you see this injustice that I am facing? Would you send angels to defend me? And those angels would have come to his side. Would have stopped those Roman soldiers from arresting him. Would have stopped those soldiers from beating him. Or putting a crown of thorns on his head. Or nailing him to a cross. Or mocking him or reviling him. Those angels would have made sure that all the rights of the king of heaven were upheld. And that no one made fun of him in the least. And yet Jesus would not ask for those angels. He would not revile in return. He would not seek vengeance upon those who brought such harm to him. He did not even so much as threaten them. Do you remember how on the cross Jesus prayed for those who had crucified him? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Beloved, he did not revile in return. He did not threaten even though Jesus knew that the day of judgment was coming, when he himself would judge the living and the dead, would judge everyone according to their works. He didn't use that reality to then threaten the people around him, like, oh, be careful what you're doing now, because one day I'm going to judge you. Even though that was true, Jesus didn't, offer, uh, Jesus didn't utter those words of threat. No, he uttered words of blessing, asking for forgiveness and mercy. So Jesus himself Did not lash out. The next thing that we read is that he entrusted himself to his heavenly father. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's the second half of verse 23. Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, when Jesus was looking at all the opposition that was coming against him, all the evils that were happening to him, What did he do? What did he look toward? He didn't look toward the evils that were happening to him. He didn't count up all the wrong things that were done. No, he looked to his father. He entrusted himself to God saying, Lord, I know that you judge justly and nothing wrong that happens to me will go unpunished. Nothing right that I do will go unrewarded. God the Father is a just judge, and he will care for us. Not one last thing goes past his view, goes past his discernment. And so when we are suffering unjustly, we can have great hope that God the Father is watching. And he is making sure that justice will be done someday. This is what we read about in Matthew 6 when Jesus was exhorting us not to pray in public so that other people would see us, right? Not to fast and make our faces look all messed up so that other people would know we are fasting. Not to give so that other people see we are giving, right? Because what does he say? He says, if you do it that way so that other people can see you, you've received your reward already. So a lot of people would ask, well, why do it then, right? If I'm not going to get praise from other people, If other people don't know what a great guy I am, how much I pray, how much I give, how much I serve, why should I do it? Well, Jesus says, because your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You can entrust yourself to God. You can entrust yourself to your Heavenly Father. There is nothing that you do, beloved, that you will not receive full credit for in the age to come. And if you want your credit now... If you want people to pat you on the back now, give you an attaboy now, say thank you now, you can have that now. It's fair, right? It's just. But guess what? (laughs) You'll receive your reward. Right, Our endeavor as believers, our endeavor as Christians should be, I want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ who did not perform for men, who did not do his acts of righteousness so that others would praise him, who in fact did his acts of righteousness and got crucified for it, but entrusted himself to his heavenly father, knowing that it's better to receive rewards in heaven than to receive rewards on earth. Beloved, I hope you see how this one principle alone can turn your whole world upside down. Beloved, all of us are human beings. We all wrestle with the fear of man. We all wrestle with wanting to please other people, wanting to be thought well of by other people. It's just a a very human thing. Whether we're in church or in the workplace, wherever we may be, a constant part of our calculation, it's a sinful part, but a constant part of our calculation is always, how are these people going to think of me? What are they going to notice of me? How can I kind of make myself look good in their eyes? How can I let them know what a good person I am? How, how well they should think of me? And what, what Peter is telling us here, the example that he's laying before us of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus was not worried what other people thought of him. He was not worried in the least. Even when they were persecuting him, even when they were killing him, he wasn't trying to correct the record, make sure they understood how wrong they were. No, he suffered quietly and he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Beloved, we can live the same way. I hope that the more you grow in Christ, you can actually start to experience uh, I almost consider it like a perverse kind of pleasure that I sometimes find if I can manage to like do something good and I know that nobody knows about it, you know? Like to me, that's like the best thing of all, right? Because I'm like, all right, I got more treasure in heaven right there. You know, I'm storing it up. Count up the coins, right? shouldn't be that crass about it. But that's the idea, right? That we understand that God, our Heavenly Father, is seeing everything we do and every good thing we do, even if nobody else recognizes it, even if they hate us for it, <laughs> He is going to reward us. He is going to judge us justly so we can entrust ourselves to our good, heavenly Father. The next piece of encouragement that Peter gives us is that Jesus did all of these things. He suffered in all these ways precisely so that we could follow in his steps. So verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So I could I could still understand if after all that I've said, if you would still say, Pastor Rob, I hear you, but my suffering is just so great and so unjust. I just, I don't think you understand. Or I don't think it's realistic that I just... Suffer graciously in this way that Peter's saying. It's too hard. It's not possible. That's why Peter writes verse 24 here. How, How does Peter know that you have the power to fight sin? How does he know that you have the power to suffer graciously even in the hardest moments? Because Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words, Christian, you have objective help to fight sin, right? This is not a self-help message. This is not if you follow these five steps, then you too can endure unjust suffering. It's not that at all. No, this message is the message that Jesus himself died upon the cross. He bore your sins on the cross. And if he bore your sins on the cross, that means that your sins have died. Your sins within you have died so you can die to sin and you can live to righteousness. In other words, it's not something that you do at all. It's something that Jesus has done for you. And you do it only by trusting in him, by leaning upon his strength. So this is not just strategies that we use or anything like that. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so Peter tells us that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Precisely so that we would know even when the suffering seems most unjust, even when the suffering seems worst, we can remind ourselves Lord Jesus, you have taken all of my sin. You have taken my hatred against this person who is causing me to suffer. You have taken my desire to lash out, to get even. You have taken my harsh words against them. You have taken all these things to the sin so that, to to the cross so that I can die to sin and live to righteousness. And so as we trust in Jesus Christ, even if our suffering becomes great indeed, even if we become like those Christians like Richard Vermbrand who have to suffer torture for the name of Christ, then even there we know that sin does not have to grab a hold of our hearts. Bitterness does not have to grab a hold of our hearts. Because Jesus himself has died to sin, and we have died in him so that we can die to sin and live to righteousness. So we have actual objective help. And then the last source of encouragement that I think Peter gives us here to this reality of suffering unjustly is what you could call to to tug at our heartstrings, right? To remind us of the love that God himself has for us, that Jesus has for us. So the very end of verse 24 there, By his wounds you have been healed. So it's like Peter saying, remember what a great thing Jesus has done for you, how much he loves you. And then verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Beloved, who is Jesus? He is the one that even when you were straying like sheep, even when you didn't desire him like you should, he is the one who is the shepherd an overseer of your souls. He is the one that drew you to himself with cords of love that healed your wounds with his own wounds. This is just to reiterate the very first point that I made about how good Jesus is. beloved. if you really understand how Jesus himself is your shepherd, is the overseer, is the one who loves you even when you stray from him, is the one who wants to bear all of your wounds, then even when you yourself are in the midst of unjust suffering, you can look to him. You can remember how unjustly he suffered. And you can speak to your own heart, and you can say, Lord Jesus, you love me. You are my shepherd." You are my overseer. I do not have a high priest who is far off from me, who does not understand what I am going through. I have a shepherd who is near, who knows the depths of my suffering, who knows the depths of the injustice that I am experiencing, and he loves me. He is a shepherd to me. He is one who oversees my soul, who cares for my soul. And so even though it may seem like an extremely hard command, even though me saying to you, one human speaking to another human, you know what, you just have to put up with unjust suffering, that would be a cruel command, would it not be? But coming from the one who himself suffered unjustly, the one who himself took your sins upon him and your sins ultimately are what put him to death, And yet who said in the midst of that, I love you, I am with you. For him to speak that over you is a totally different thing than just some stranger standing up here telling you what you should do. The Lord Jesus is near to you and he loves you. And if he calls you to suffer unjustly, that does not make it easy at all. That does not not remove the weight of unjust suffering. But it does mean you have someone with you to bear the weight alongside you, to help you endure, who knows what you are experiencing. He loves you, and you can trust yourself to Him. What all of this means, in sum, is that it is especially through unjust suffering that we come to know our Savior. It is especially through unjust suffering. That we come to know our Savior because unjust suffering is exactly what he experienced. In gratitude, he experienced that. Unfair expectations, he experienced that. Slander, he experienced that. Any type of unjust suffering, Jesus has been there. And as you yourself enter into that experience, you enter into a nearness with your Savior that you could not possibly have any other way so that you are actually able, because of your sufferings, to rejoice. Not just to endure, but to rejoice precisely because of what it gives you. It gives you more privilege to know Jesus than those who do not have that kind of suffering. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul has listed through his many sufferings. And in verse 10, he says that I may know him, that is Jesus Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What are the sufferings that Jesus experienced? Unjust sufferings. What was the death he experienced? An unjust death. He says that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He was looking forward to his Father who is caring for him. Or consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 11, and 12. This refers to a specific kind of unjust suffering, but I think it applies more broadly. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, because, precisely because Jesus became the upside-down kind of hero that the world could not know by reason alone, precisely because of that, so now our greatest victory becomes an upside-down kind of victory, Right? No longer is our victory when we've conquered everyone, when we've gotten authority everyone, when everyone respects us, when everyone shows us the thanks that we're due. No, now the victory for the Christian becomes when I am able to share in the sufferings of Jesus, when I am able to suffer unjustly. Beloved, this isn't just something for superhero Christians. This is for anyone who's come to know Jesus as their Savior, again, all of us will taste unjust suffering in small forms or large forms. And in whatever kind of unjust suffering you experience, entrust yourself to God the Father through Jesus Christ, and you will have the comfort that you need in your time of need. Let's go to God in prayer right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the good news that you did suffer unjustly for us. And that means not only that our sins are now forgiven and we can know you forever, but it also means that in the midst of the great injustice that we face, that we have a friend who is closer than a brother. And so I thank you, Lord Jesus, for tasting our sorrows, for being acquainted with grief. Would you help us to draw near to you and to study your example in our own times of suffering so that we wouldn't look for the praise of men, but so that we would look for the praise of God? Would you now receive, Lord, our prayers of petition, prayers of confession? If you're tugging on any of our hearts, and as we cry out to you, Lord, would you hear and would you respond without delay?